As you know, we are studying the book of James. So if you have your Bible or your electronic device, turn it to the book of James. And um, today's lesson, last week, if you remember the uh, outline, we got that outline, Larry? I think I tricked you on this one. Yeah. Uh, so the theme of the book of James, the purpose and the theme are really uh, related as to faith in action. James is writing to Christians. He assumes that they believe in Christ, that they have the faith, or they at least profess the faith in Christ. And so therefore he is writing to say, if you have the faith, you should live like it. And so the uh, theme is faith in action. And so you can look at everything he writes in, in all five chapters, and it's related to faith in action. You know, the uh, if you have the faith, it should result in leading the life, the Christian life, the holy life, the faith in action, right? So last week, we hit the uh, trials or the tests, as the text says. Uh, we're talking about uh, difficult situations, illnesses, problems, adversity. What is your response to that? If you have the faith, he said, you can see uh, beyond that, you can overlook it, you can uh, see what God's doing in spite of that, that God has a ministry in the trouble. Uh, and today's lesson uh, is about faith, uh, how you respond to temptations, all right? So this week, uh, we're going to talk about temptation. And uh, one of the leading theologians on temptation uh, that uh, we want to consult when it comes to, to this issue, is uh, Flip Wilson. <laughs> that was from the uh, Ed Sullivan Show. Remember the Ed Sullivan Show? That takes you way back. I think that was 1970. Uh, <clears throat> but that, that kind of represents, you know, it's funny, but it kind of represents the human race. You know, it's not my fault. You know, somebody made me do this. It's not my fault. Uh, and so biblical temptation, uh, as opposed to last week testing, biblical temptation is enticement to evil. Enticement to evil. Uh, and it's to be distinguished from last week's testing uh, because our testing is our response to external difficulties. When something, uh, some uh, circumstance or difficulty or trouble comes externally, but tempting is brought about by our internal lust that's within us. And when our lust meets opportunity, we fall to temptation. And amazing thing about that is in Greek, they use the same word. It's the same word up there that's uh, translated testing is translated tempting in today's lesson. Parasmos is the Greek word. And uh, you wonder, well, how can that be right? Well, a lot of, a lot of Greek words, you, you really have to know the context to know which meaning it has in our translation. And it's pretty obvious he's talking about adversity up there in, in uh, verse 2 and 3. And he's talking about enticement to evil uh, in verse 13 and 14. So uh, we're talking about temptation, which is enticement to evil. And, of course, it's common to the human race to deny responsibility, just like uh, Geraldine. It's not my fault. When people fail morally and ethically, you know, they, the typical thing is, it's not my fault. 
A lot of people say the devil made me do it. Other people say something worse. God made me do it. God made me like this, uh, put me in this situation, or they you know, can also blame it on other people. He did it, she did it, it's not my fault. And of course, that's been going on from the very beginning. Remember Adam uh, in uh, Genesis 3, in the very beginning, what happened? Adam first sinned, and he was confronted by God. God said, what happened? Why would you do that? And Adam took it like a man and blamed it on the woman. Literally, Genesis 3.12, his response was, this woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. So he not only first blamed it on the woman, then, she, then he blamed it on God. The woman gave, but, and you gave her to me, you know. And so it wasn't his fault, right? So right off the bat, the human race, ever since the original sin, uh, has denied responsibility. But how does the... Uh, Falling to evil, how do we get enticed to evil? How does this happen? None of us want to do something wrong. We all want to do what's right. None of us wants to lie. None of us wants to blame it on someone else. So how does this happen? The problem within all of us really is has to do with our desires. We desire. And the interesting thing is God made us with desires for a good reason, Right? Uh, we, we desire food, drink, sex, money, popularity, power, and you could go on and on and on. But, I mean, when you think about it, what happened? What did we do with it? What what people do from the very beginning? What Adam and Eve do? Eating is good, but gluttony is bad. Uh, drinking is good, but drunkenness is bad. Sex is good, but adultery is bad. Money is good, but greed is bad. So what, have we, what we have done with the natural desires that God gave us that were good is we have corrupted them. The human race has turned what was originally good into something now that's bad. And, of course, God, being perfectly righteous and good, uh, he uh, gave us all these things because they were good for us, and we took it and really uh, messed up every one of them. The human race... Uh, eats too much, drinks too much, commits adultery, unnatural, depraved sex, and is greedy. That's the truth. Uh, we, we all know that. There is more empirical evidence for those things than anything else in the world. You know, people are always trying to prove things. Well, you've got to scientifically approve it and empirical evidence. Well, there's more empirical evidence for uh, the evil in the human race and the sin nature in the human race than any other thing that I've ever seen. I mean, it is abundant. All you got to do is read the paper, go on the Internet, wherever you want to go, you can find it and prove it. It's just the way things is. But God is perfectly righteous and good. It's what we've done with what he's given us. Therefore, where does the responsibility lie? People want to put it somewhere else, but the truth is it's our fault. This human race has got to take responsibility for what they do and part of our sin nature is that lust we've turned desire into what the bible calls lust and that lust is within it within us and how does it happen well uh, we have an illustration here that will uh, clearly explain that uh, it's the bug zapper i'm sure uh, you'll understand why this has everything to do with biblical principles 
But when you look at the bug zapper, uh, what happens? It's an instrument of death to bugs. But amazingly, bugs choose to enter this thing. They choose to come to this thing. And they get zapped. They choose the very thing that leads to their destruction. And why would they do that? Because their enemy has done extensive research to discover what a bug cannot resist. You follow me? You see where I'm going with this? Uh, this zapper involves deception. Uh, it promises pleasure and gratification to the bug. It looks good, it smells good, it seems good. So the bug thinks, I bet it will gratify my desire. See, bugs think, you know, they can... <laughs> and what is this? It has a 40-watt ultraviolet light that excites and draws insects to it, lures them into an electric grid where they're electrocuted and fall into a tray. Uh, you can't see it on there, but I mean right below this thing is a tray full of dead flies and flying insects of every kind. There's probably hundreds in the typical tray, uh, which you think, wait a minute. They can see all their buddies and their relatives in the tray, but they still come to it. <laughs> Amazing. And I think bugs uh, uh, see this, this real uh, wonderful, beautiful light, and they think, wow, that light is cool. Let's get a closer look. And then what happens? Zap! They get hit. What did they do? They blindly followed their desires. They said, I, I want to get closer to that. I want to see more of that. I want to be in the light. And they get zapped. Uh, but wait, if, if bugs are so smart, why, do they, why don't they wise up? All their buddies are in the tray. Can't they see all those dead flies and bugs in the tray? Don't they know what's happened to them? I, I say, yeah, they, they do. They see the hundreds of bodies of their own kind. Uh, but... What do they think? They think to themselves, well, I know what I'm doing, and I know I can resist this. I know I can get close to this and get a good look at it, and nothing will happen to me, right? I know what I'm doing. It won't happen to me. Others got zapped, but I never will. It won't end me. Only a bug uh, could be that stupid, right? Only a bug would go flying mindlessly into the same trap that other bugs have died in, right? Wait a minute, who else would do that? Politicians. Zap! Every politician all over the place. When we were in Israel last summer, the guy, you know, people said, you know, our politicians are fairly corrupt, but I, I imagine yours are all honest. He says, no, no. Our politicians are elected for four years, and that gives them four years to embezzle as much as possible. <laughs> and I just saw in the paper that Netanyahu's going to be indicted. I mean, it's, it's endemic to the human race. Politicians, you know, they, they've got access to the money, you know, and they're just going to take it. They're, they're corrupt. Even though they see all these other politicians that have gone before them that have ended up in the Huskow. What about priests and ministers zap how many times how many have to get involved 
in sex scandals or money scandals that they don't, they don't learn. They keep coming to the bug zapper, just like the flies. They're just like them, you know? They think, this won't happen to me. I can get away with this, right? Zap. What about accountants, lawyers, real estate? Zap, zap, zap! How many of those have gotten involved in trouble? How many of those are in white-collar prison, right? And yet people still continue to do crooked things. Uh, and, of course, it began at the very beginning. Uh, the first woman, Eve, saw the fruit, and she was tempted. She thought it was good. She thought that she could handle it. Zap. Then Adam came right after her. Zap. Then their, their son, their first son, Cain, what did he do? Zap. They never learn. Why? Why do intelligent people who really do believe in God engage in actions and behavior that are proven to be self-destructive? Why do they follow right in the path of all these other people who have been destroyed? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. There's three forces against us that are very powerful forces. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We think we can resist it. We think we can overcome it. It won't happen to me. But these forces, uh, without God's help, will overpower you and overcome every single time. And they're, de they're self-destructive. There's nothing good about them. They appear good, but they're not. Let's talk about them for just a minute, these three forces. The world, I'm talking about the fallen world. The Bible talks about it. First John uh, chapter 2. Uh, the author John says, don't love the world. What the, what's the world offering you? You know, riches and glory and fame and pleasure. He says, don't be fooled by all that. Don't love the world and the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, God, is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from God, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So the world he's talking about is that part of the human race uh, that does not believe in God, who's apart from God, re has rejected God. And, of course, the world is full of lies that sound good, right? Sound good and pleasing to your ear. Like, if it feels good, do it. I, what could be wrong with that? It just makes sense, right? Uh, and you can think of, you know, this is the me generation. And you could go on forever thinking of all the lies in the world that everybody falls for. The biggest one is the ends justify the means. You've been hearing that all your life. And you and I have bought into it. The ends justify the means. What is that? Win at any cost. I don't care how you do it, just get it done. Who didn't have a boss that, that basically told you that? Right? Uh, you're your coaches, your teachers, your parents, uh, even if it was subliminal, it was like, you better succeed. You better get this done. And uh, I don't want to know about any corners you cut to get it done. Just get it done. And you've got all the great coaches like Vince Lombardi, you know, when is I, don't, I can't even remember what he said, but it's winning is everything, you know. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much the message that the world's teaching that most people buy into. So the world's a very powerful force, and it the peers in the world, your peer pressure is overwhelming. 
let's face it, peer pressure in the world is overwhelming to conform, okay? Second force, the flesh, we have within us these powerful desires, the lust, the Bible calls it, the longings, the passions that drive us. You know, uh, Galatians 5 talks about it. It says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, which I forewarn you, I forewarn you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm sure that one of those probably applies to each and every one of us. You know, take your pick. Uh, I've got my eye on a couple of people I know. They all, you know. But that's the flesh. That's the desires of the flesh, right? Uh, and we, we all fall for this. We think we can gratify the desires of the flesh. You never can. You can't get enough money. You can't get enough uh, sex. You can't get, I mean, you can't go on. Uh, and it's just the way it is, right? It never gratifies you. It fools you into thinking it it's going to gratify all these lusts you have, but it never does. You just build up. You want more and more and more, right? And, of course, the third power uh, is the devil or the adversary of God is, is the way I put it because that's literally what Satan means, adversary, the adversary of God. And so Peter warns against that. says, be sober of spirit, you know, pay attention uh, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, how does he devour? He, he doesn't, especially uh, Christians, people who have God in their life, who believe in Jesus as their Savior, he's still after them. He wants to corrupt you. If you have a passion or a lust that you're trying to gratify, he's going to come and egg you on somehow. He's going to help you justify it, going to help you rationalize it, right? We're really good at that. And so the world, the flesh, and the devil is active, and uh, we need to be aware of that, and we need to realize how difficult this is to overcome. Uh, what should we do? First uh, John 1, 8 uh, makes it very clear. If you have fallen, if you have been enticed to evil, you need to fess up, right? If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. So anybody here that says they, they don't sin or, or have never sinned or they're perfect, he's saying, get real. Anybody who says that is deceiving themselves. And the truth is not in us. But on the other hand, so God will not honor when he says, if you're like in verse 8, or you're like Adam, who says, I didn't, it wasn't my fault, it was her fault. Or if you're like Geraldine, uh, he will not honor that. But verse 9, what will he honor? If you confess your sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, uh, no cover up. you got to come clean. The cover up just makes it worse. We'll talk about that later. But uh, how reluctant are we? Consider this list of actual comments 
that people made on insurance forms. They're filling out about how accidents happened. These are actual comments. Uh, a pedestrian hit me and went under my car. In my attempt to kill a pesky fly, I drove into a telephone pole. I was on my way to the doctors with rear-end trouble when my universal joint gave way, causing an accident. The pedestrian had no idea which way to go, so I ran over him. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and drove over the embankment. The cause of this accident was a little guy in a small car with a big mouth. So we blame everything on somebody else. It's not my fault, no matter what. And uh, that's a problem, right? Because we are responsible for all the stuff that goes on in our life, uh, ultimately, uh, not God and not somebody else. And so if you look at the text with me in uh, the letter of James to the church, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. Um, so we've established that one of the chief characteristics of, of the human race is sin nature. Uh, the propacity to, to pass blame on is endemic to the human race. Uh, just, just, you know, I, I mentioned a few already like Adam and Eve and their, and their first son Cain. But, you know, you could go right through every single Bible character. Noah, you know, he passed out drunk when he got off the, the boat. I guess, you know, when you've been on that boat with your family for over a year, you know, what are you going to do when you get off, right? So he has too much to drink, and he passes out drunk. And what does he say? Why give us a vineyard if we can't drink? Abraham sold his wife for a herd of goats. Uh, that actually happened. And his saying was, well, Pharaoh's choice was to take my wife. It's his fault. Uh, Jacob, remember he deceived and lied to his father. Uh, and Jacob said, well, Esau was going to get my birthright. Uh, Joseph's brothers, you know, they beat him up, threw him in the pit, sold him into slavery. And the brother said, well, that younger brother was an arrogant brat, and he deserved it. Moses murdered an Egyptian, and he says, I was just defending Israel. Aaron, here's my favorite, Aaron, you know, Moses' brother, when Moses went up on the mountain to get further instruction, and, and uh, when he comes back, he sees Aaron leading the, the rest of the nation in idolatry. You know, they made the golden calf, and they're having an orgy. And when Moses uh, <laughs> comes up to him, he says, it's not my fault. I just threw some gold into the fire, and out came the calf. always been this way with the human race. Uh, I saw the joke about uh, four priests who were on retreat, just, you know, they, they went on a vacation, and they just were talking, uh, and they decided to share their biggest temptations. So the, the first priest said, well, I like to look at Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Everybody went, ooh. The next guy said, well, I'm worse. Every Saturday I go to the racetrack and gamble. I even borrow a little money out of the offering. The third priest said, well, gosh, I hate to admit this, but I'm a heavy drinker and I drink the sacramental wine there. <laughs> so the fourth guy says, well, I've got you all beat. Uh, my biggest temptation is gossip. 
And if you'll excuse me, I have to make some phone calls. <laughs> All right. So verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13 in James. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. Nobody blame it on God. God may be like this. God put me in this situation. I couldn't help it. Any of those kind of things. Let no one say I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Uh, And so he's going to give four strong proofs that you can't blame God or others. You should take responsibility yourself. Four strong proofs here. In verse 13, he talks about the nature of evil. Evil and God are mutually exclusive. God is perfectly holy and righteous and is never the author of sin. God is never the author of sin. So you can't blame it on him and you can't say he made me like this and it's not my fault. Uh, Secondly, in verse 14, the second proof is the nature of man. What is the nature of man? Uh, Verse 14 says, each one, all people, each one of us is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. So each one of us uh, is characterized with a certain amount of lust in something. Everybody's different. And we all have these uh, lustful desires, some more than others. You know, you might say, well, I don't. But I can promise you, you have at least a little, right? The Bible says everyone has got some. Everyone is, can be indicted for being uh, lustful about something. And we must take responsibility for that. Because that's what happens. We have that lust, and then we get carried away by that. A third thing, uh, verse uh, 15 through 16, is the nature of the lust. And so he, he lays out uh, an image, an uh, allegory, you might say, of birth. And he says uh, in verse 15 and 16, then when lust has conceived, so it's like birthing a child, you know, it's within you, and then when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And so he uses this uh, this picture of, you know, we've got this within us and then it is birthed and becomes alive and happens, right? So it's like a mother conceiving and then the child grows within until it's fully born. And as we can see here, sin, therefore, is a process. Sin is a process that goes on within us that begins with what you might say the misplaced desire that's in us, the lust that's in us. And there's four steps. It's, it's a process, then how does the process develop? What happens? Four steps, I think. First is that strong desire, that lust. You have a strong desire for something. Uh, and that develops until it becomes somewhat of a fantasy, something that you think about, something that you want. Uh, and then secondly, it deceives you or rationalizes uh, self-deception, and you rationalize, uh, and the de- when you do that, the desire builds into a force that overcomes our good sense until we can say, oh, this won't hurt anything. 
I can justify this. This won't be my fault. Uh, and so you, you come up with some devious scheme and plan to rationalize and justify what your lust wants you to do, even though you know it's wrong. I hope that made sense. Uh, we kind of come around in circles with that. Uh, and then thirdly, in the process, is what I would call design. And what do I mean by design? Design, you make plans. You design a way uh, to let this happen. You make plans for it. I'll go here or go there and find that and do this. Plans are made. Schemes are hatched to fulfill the desire. And it is at this point that we're guilty. When you do that, when you come up with your scheme or your plan, then that's the point of no return. That's the point of full guilt. Uh, even then, number four, uh, the set fourth deal of the uh, process is the actual committing of the act. You actually do it. You act on it. Opportunity comes and uh, bam, you disobey, you fall prey, you're enticed to the evil act, whatever it may be. And what's the result? The text says, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, what happens? It brings forth death. Well, we know that there's no physical death. Every time you sin, there's no physical death. So what is he talking? Well, all through the Bible, the essence of death is separation from God. Separation. Get that. When you sin, you, choose, you have chosen to separate yourself from God at that point in time. You follow me? And that's not a good thing. You don't want to be separated from God at all uh, because we need Him. We're not fully human without Him, within that relationship with Him. We're somebody else. We're, we suddenly are worldly, certainly uh, uh, really a different person, you could say. And so uh, it is self-destructive. And God doesn't want us to do it for our own good. A lot of people think of God as this taskmaster who's demanding that you do all these things and makes up all these rules and regulations. Everything that he has given us to do, every command that he has given us to obey is for our own good. It is because he loves us and knows that anything else is self-destructive. Is self-destructive. And you end up in that tray like those insects in the bug zapper. It's self-destructive. They still flew into the light, and what happened? Bam, death. And that's the way it works with us as well. And you can go through all the stories in the Bible, all those guys that I mentioned, and it did that. It separated them from God. It separated them from God. Um, so what's the prescription? What did they do? What did those guys in the Bible do? How, how did they uh, make this go away? How did they get back in connection and in, in relationship with God? The prescription is to take full responsibility. Take full responsibility. And we saw it in the uh, 1 John 1 passage where he said, confess your sin. Come before God, confess and repent of it. So you confess your sin, and the repentance, the Greek word means to change your mind. 
you thought that you were going to get away with something. You thought it would be okay to do this. But now, not only do you confess it, but you repent of it saying, uh, I've changed my mind. I'm not doing that anymore. That's not worth it. That's not good for me. All that caused was trouble. So that's the prescription. And uh, what you want to do in taking full responsibility, you're, you need to negate step two. What was step two? It was that rationalization it was that the self-deception that this will be okay. I'll just do this that one time. I got a right to do this because they did this to me, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, when you confess and take full responsibility, you do away with that rationalization and that justification. You never get to step three and four because you stopped it at step two, right? Uh, so that's the prescription Take full responsibility. It's on your shoulders. Lust and sin come from us. They're within us. But on the other hand, all the good things come from God. Look at verse, so verse 16. He said, don't deceive yourself. And then verse 17 and 18, he says, let me give you a contrast between the two things. Between separated from God and being in relationship to God. Here it is in verse 17 and 18. This is what you want. Every good thing, every righteous thing, every happy, joyous thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. That word gift is grace. The grace of God comes from God. Not from the world, not from the flesh. The grace of God comes from Him. Every good thing, every grace of God is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He doesn't change. He doesn't fall in and out of favor. He doesn't make mistakes. He's always holy and righteous and good. So there's no bad days for God, right? No bad days for God. And that's where He wants us as well, to stay in that relationship with Him. Every good thing Everything that we want comes from Him. Verse 18, in the exercise of His will, of God's will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. We might represent Him and be His among the human race. So go back. In the exercise of His will, He did something. God's will... As, you know, uh, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's what he's saying, exactly the same thing right here. Uh, it was God's will, he exercised his will, to brought us forth, to, to uh, birth us spiritually. That could easily be translated to birth us spiritually. God exercised his will to do that. How did he do that? By sending Christ into the world to die on the cross for our sins. God accomplished that. And by having Christ as your Savior, your sins are atoned for and you are within, you are in a relationship with the living God. Every good thing comes from God. So in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits 
among his creatures, those who are redeemed. That's the contrast. You want to be outside every good thing and be involved in every bad thing and end up in the tray with the bugs? Or you want to be with him and receive every good thing? It comes just, just that simple. It comes down to that. And I think one of the great uh, examples of that uh, in the Bible, there's two guys in the Bible that uh, I want to bring up. The first one is Joseph, and the second one is David. Both men had different reactions to enticement to evil. Joseph, remember Potiphar's wife? She enticed him to evil. What did he do? He ran! He got the heck out of there. But it, that was in, that was in uh, Genesis 39. But in 2 Samuel 11, what did David do? He saw. And he started building this image up. I mean, I don't know how far away Bathsheba was. But, but he started. There he is. Uh, I don't know if you can see Bathsheba over there. But it's X-rated. She's naked. Uh, and he sees her and he goes, wow, must have her. And as he fantasized about her and built her up, she became what I would call his irresistible object of desire. Remember, we went through the process. When he gets to step two and three, he's goner. When you get that far gone and you're, uh, rationalizing it, this is okay to do this, and you've got this fantasy, uh, you're done. And at that moment, can anybody say David wasn't saved? No, David was one of the greatest men there ever was. Totally saved. The text says many times he had a heart for God. God chose him. See, he was a great guy, a super guy. Yet, he fall victim to that process that we've been talking about. And he acted upon his lust. And so you know the Bathsheba story. Surely he read 1 John 1.8. Now, of course, it wasn't written yet, but I'm sure he knew that concept was true. Did he confess? No. What did he do? What's typical of the world? The cover-up. You think the sin was bad, the cover-up is always worse. And so it just kept getting worse and worse and worse until what he had to do to cover it up had to murder her husband. So he went from adultery to murder. And then during that one-year cover-up, how is life? How is life when you're covering up? How is life after you fall in victim to enticement to evil and you're living with it? It's, it's not good. It's not happy at all. David actually wrote uh, several uh, psalms about it, his experience of how he felt uh, when, when he had done that, right? Uh, and so in Psalm 32, David says, I'm quoting, talking about his experience during the cover-up, when I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away. My soul groaned. God's hand was heavy upon me. God disciplines those 
whom he loves. David was torn up. He was even bothered physically. He couldn't sleep. He groaned within. It was, it was a terrible year he spent covering this thing up. Afterwards, afterwards, when Nathan the prophet came to him and his sin was exposed and he fell down and confessed it and he was forgiven by God, he also wrote this, David did, uh, about what it felt like to be forgiven. David said, how blessed is he whose sin is forgiven. What a contrast. When he was covering it up, didn't confess it, he was miserable. But after he did, how blessed is he whose sin is forgiven. And that's what God wants to do with us. He wants us to come forward, be completely transparent, and remain in that relationship. And when we blow it, because we will, but when we do, we need to fess up, and God is faithful to forgive us. God loves us and wants what's best for us. And if we'll just come to him, we'll get it. All good things come down from God. And he wants to give them to us. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us. Thank you so much for forgiving us, for providing through Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, the atonement for our sins. We praise you and thank you what you've done for us and how much you love us and I know you want the best for us uh, and sin is self-destructive and so Lord I pray that you would draw us nearer to you in relationship so that we might experience all those good things that come down from you in Jesus name amen